I'm Thanasi Kambanis. This is the TCF World Podcast, episode 40. Today, we're going to talk about Israel-Palestine in our continuing series of conversations about progressive U.S. foreign policy and how and what a different, better foreign policy might look like. Today, we're joined here in New York by Dalia Shandlin, a political scientist from Tel Aviv, who is also uh, an occasional contributor to the Century Foundation's work on Israel-Palestine, and my colleague, Michael Wahid Hanna, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Thanks, everyone, for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to have a three-part conversation. We're going to start off by talking about long-term trends in the politics of Israel-Palestine. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about uh, where the conflict stands today. And in the third part, we're going to move to uh, possibilities for a different U.S. Uh, policy. So let's jump uh, right in, Dahlia. You've done a lot of, uh, you've spent a whole career doing in-depth polling uh, on on political trends. Where is uh, Israel-Palestine heading and where is its center of political gravity today? Maybe we should start by explaining why we are talking about Israel-Palestine as if it's one unit. I mean, the two the two entities are developing in such a in a kind of trajectory that doesn't allow for them to be seen separately from one another. They're completely intertwined, uh, practically interdependent in a way. Of course, it's not a symmetrical situation, uh, but I don't think you can really discuss one without discussing the other at this point. So uh, we're, t- we're you know we can focus more on Israeli politics today because we are coming up to elections pretty soon. The second election that we are having this year. But Palestinian politics is no less important. The only difference is that they haven't had elections in many years. Uh, They have a divided government, and it seems like a very atrophied political situation, uh, which essentially plays into Israel's advantage uh, because it kind of lets Israel off the hook for negotiations. But we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, On the Israeli side, we're having our second election in the same year because in the elections in April, Israel, uh, the, the winners of the election, which was the Likud party, was not able to form a government. And therefore, the coalition negotiations fell apart and uh, the, they decided to go into new, a new round of elections. And, you know, the confusing thing is that the parties keep shifting. They keep changing, merging, emerging, collapsing. Uh, many, many lists might merge. So we can't really know exactly where the elections are going. And for that reason, I think it's more valuable to look at the long-term trends of who Israelis are and what kinds of uh, positions are on offering from the parties over the long term. So is is have you found that there are consistent trends on on the big issues of how people see themselves defining right, left, or center? Uh, how Palestinians and Israelis uh, uh, view the long term trends of of their preferences? Yeah, there are some very consistent long term trends. Uh, once you get away from the actual question of which party you're going to vote for, the biggest long term trend in Israeli society that hasn't changed a lot over the years, and there's an interesting parallel in the Palestinian society, is. Uh, for Israelis, the self-identification question of whether they consider themselves left, right, or centrist. And those are very meaningful concepts in Israeli life. It's the same as your liberal conservative axis in other countries or, um, you know, um, yeah, liberal conservative is probably the best parallel. On the Palestinian side, it does tend to be party identification, by the way. So whether you identify more with Fatah or Hamas, that that carries the same kind of weight as it does in Israeli society uh, in terms of the axis. And these self-identified labels are very strong indicators of a whole range of policy positions. But first and foremost, they indicate for Israelis where they stand on the issue of security and the conflict, which is, which is essentially two sides of the same coin, uh, where people stand on security is simply a reflection or, you know, the, the other side of the looking glass in terms of where they stand on the conflict. If they're, if they're really, really focused on security, they're 
probably right wing. And if they're really, really focused on peace, they're left wing. And if they're generally for a two state solution, but they don't really see how we get there, but they would probably agree to it if they were, uh, if they felt things could go in that direction, they're probably centrist. Uh, and that's been a very, very consistent finding over the years in Israel. And the breakdown very much reflects what we see in elections over the long term. So about half of Israeli society, Israeli adults identify themselves as right wing. About a quarter identify themselves as centrists, and roughly 20%, one fifth, identify as left wing. Is this Jewish Israelis or? No, Israelis that's overall? all of Israeli society. If you look just at Jewish Israelis, who are about 80% of all Israelis, you see uh, that the tilt is more towards the right wing. We have between 56 and even up to close to 60% who self identify as right wing. So much heavier right wing orientation among Jews and a much smaller orientation towards left-wing, about 14, 15% of Jews consider themselves to be left-wing and a similar number of centrists as among the general population, between 25 and 30%, depending on margin of error, but it doesn't change that much uh, when you just isolate the Jews. But you can see that there's a much heavier right-wing tilt. And that is very much reflected in not only how the right-wing parties present themselves, but also how the center parties uh, and sometimes even the parties that are considered left-wing try to appeal to voters. They're all trying to present themselves and convince Israelis that they're not too far left-wing because left is kind of a dirty word considering that just a small percentage identify with that concept. Are the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship also majority right-wing? No, Palestinians uh, who have Israeli citizenship are what tilt the balance back to the original numbers that I said. So if you have among Jews close to 60% who identify as right-wing, so few Palestinian citizens of Israel identify as right-wing that they bring down that average to 50%. Uh, the numbers are very small. They're not, min they're, not, uh, they're not non-existent. I mean, there are Palestinian citizens of Israel, primarily Druze, but not only, right? Druze being a small portion of, very small portion of the Palestinian society in Israel, uh, who identify as right-wing, but they're not heavily ideological. They just have a historic kind of loyalty uh, to Likud party going way back to the early years of the statehood. Um, and so that's, that number is small. It's usually about somewhere between 20 and 25 percent, but obviously much lower than the Jewish population. You have a higher portion who consider themselves left-wing, usually about 30, 35, even 40 percent, and about 20 or 25 percent who consider themselves centrist. The bigger trend, uh, the biggest difference among Palestinian citizens of Israel in surveys is that they don't, there's a much higher portion who don't want to give any identification uh, and take themselves out uh, in that sense. And I think it has to do with their uh, suspicion of being sort of uh, identified politically, they're, they're suspicious of Israeli politics, and they feel increasingly like they might be somehow, um, you know, they're already feeling in a very uncertain situation in Israel. It's gotten worse over the last decade. There's been legislation targeting them. There's been growing tensions. Uh, the nation-state law, of course, has left them extremely alienated and fearful for their um, position as citizens uh, and, and really destroying their hope of ever gaining equality. And many, I think, are becoming disillusioned in general and sort of remove themselves from political life. And so that's why we see a higher portion who simply don't want to identify at all. And to the extent the Arab parties are participating, um, it's a strange kind of participation. So maybe just maybe if you could just describe that. It's a briefly. strange participation because it's a bit tormented in terms of the dilemmas that they face. I mean, there's all you know, there's always a discussion in Palestinian society in terms of Israeli citizens, right? Arab Israeli, Palestinian Israeli citizens, about um, you know, to what extent do you join the system, or to what extent do you try to be outside the system and and really be a very tough opposition. 
The interesting thing is that traditionally over the years, the Palestinian citizens of Israel have opted for a much more integrationist approach to social life in general. Their desire is to be equal citizens, is to join the workforce, is to share in basically all aspects of Israeli life. Um, and for most of their history, that means voting as well. The political parties, however, have reflected this dilemma in the following way. They always compete to be in the parliament in Israeli, Israel's Knesset. Um, we often have three Arab parties competing, even though there's only, they're only about 20% of society. But they have a very strong sensitivity and, and um, you know, generally skepticism towards the idea of joining the governing coalition. Now, there's another side of that and that, that they've never been invited to join the governing coalition. No Jewish party has ever invited an independent Arab party in Israel to join the governing coalition. Not even which, labor? Not even labor. Labor has had satellite Arab parties, you know, long ago during the time when much of the Arab population was controlled by a military government. So they weren't even truly independent parties and they were satellites within labor. So technically on a very, very technical level that I think doesn't really count, uh, there have been Arab parties inside the governing coalition, but not ever as independent parties and not when Arabs were ever truly independent and equal citizens because they were still under martial law in Israel until 1966. Um, as independent parties, they've never been invited in, and therefore they've never held executive power. But if, but again, that dilemma remains. And so I think one of the interesting changes that we're seeing among the Palestinian citizens of Israel is a growing debate about, you know, if Israeli society, if a right-wing government over the last 10 years has been making their life harder and harder, targeting them, passing legislation against them, undercutting their uh, even, you know, uh, de jure equality in Israeli society— one of the responses, one of the arguments is that they should respond by being even more integrated and even possibly joining the governing coalition if they were ever to be invited in. Uh, I have asked that question in a survey among Palestinian citizens of Israel and had over 80 percent who would support an Arab party joining the governing coalition. And I think that really reflects the sense that there is a crisis. You either remove yourself completely or you try to get as deeply you know, as close as you can to the centers of power. And it's a major dilemma right now among the Arab community. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm here with uh, Dalia Scheinlin from Tel Aviv, a political scientist and expert on politics in Israel-Palestine, and Michael Wahid Hanna, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Uh, we were just talking about the long-term trends in Israeli politics, and now I want to turn uh, our, our attention to uh, the the state of play in the, in the conflict, and also sort of where people stand on the the two-state or one-state solution. Where things stand on the conflict is, you know, it's almost a murky question right now. It's hard to even know how to define it. Is it really a conflict or is it simply a permanent situation of Israeli control, uh, de facto control over all the territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea? Uh, and that control takes various forms. Uh, but I think that after, you know, 52 years after 1967, it is not accurate to call it a temporary 
a temporary situation, which is one of the definitions of military occupation is that it's supposed to be temporary. It's clearly no longer temporary. Um, Israel formally controls civil and military affairs in most of the West Bank, 60% of the West Bank, which is Area C. And the annexationist intentions are becoming clearer and clearer over time. And when I say annexationist, uh, Israel has a very intensive and growing physical presence in the West Bank through both settlement activity uh, in terms of numbers of settlers, in terms of the strategic location of settler settlements in ways that break up Palestinian contiguity, and in terms of Israel Israeli army presence, uh, it doesn't look at, you know, in, in addition to civilian infrastructure, it's very hard to imagine how Israel rolls that back, and it doesn't look like Israel's like Israel has any intention of rolling it back, given how energetically, Israel's expanding that presence. At the same time, you have growing legitimization of annexation within the Israeli rhetorical debate. We have numerous right-wing parties, including the prime minister and the leading Likud party who openly support various forms of annexation. The prime minister now famously uh, promised to annex all Israeli settlements at some point. And we have legislation or bills that have been proposed in a you know kind of accelerated pace over the last number of years advancing various forms of annexation. So it's hard to see how that turns back. And of course, the UN has determined through its investigation, uh, through its commission reports after the last war in Gaza, that Israel does maintain, maintain effective control over Gaza, even though it's pulled out the army and settlements from inside Gaza. But Israel controls all the perimeters except for the Rafah border uh, and controls the electromagnetic sphere and airspace and all crossings uh, other than Rafah and land, you know, land crossings and uh, population registry. So Israel does have very tight control over the region. And some people think that Where's the conflict? Simply Israeli control. However, we have had, you know, in the past phases of negotiations, and those negotiations have been oriented since 1991 and more, uh, you know, more substantially since 1993. All negotiations between Israel and Palestinian leadership have been around a two-state solution. The idea is that the two parties can separate themselves into two sovereign uh, and separate entities, uh, both sovereign independent states. That looks increasingly unlikely over over the years, and especially in recent years, given what I just said in the beginning, that you know Israel's annexationist uh, intentions are manifested in its physical presence and its growing legal basis for annexation. It's hard to see how the two sides ever completely separate. The political leadership uh, of Israel over the last 10 years has been a right-wing government that is essentially openly hostile to the idea of a two-state solution and public support for it on both sides among Israelis and Palestinians is reflective of the reality on the ground and the reality of their leadership. And so we see support declining uh, slowly and incrementally on both sides. Uh, we've, I've done surveys with my colleague, uh, my Palestinian colleague, Khalil Shikaki. We do a joint uh, Palestinian-Israeli survey where we found uh, in July of 2018, that both sides dipped below the halfway mark, dipped below 50% in terms of support for a two-state solution. You know, we can still see small ups and downs. You know, one population might go slightly over 50% at any given point. Um, but among Israeli Jews and Palestinians in that particular survey, only 43% supported a two-state solution. So even if the numbers go a little bit up and down or different polls can show them at slightly different levels, what we're seeing is a real collapse of the, genu the general idea that this is the consensus paradigm. But it reflects the reality on the ground. Well, there, and, and, and I mean, the, re the reality on the ground is a, is a product of a series of political choices that played out in the decades since Oslo. Uh, so, it, I mean, it didn't happen by accident. These were self-reinforcing uh, trends. But 
my my impression is at this point the the overwhelming majority of Jewish Israelis and certainly of the Jewish Israeli political establishment no longer has any interest in giving up any of the control that it's managed to 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 win. So whether whether we're talking about legal changes in the status of parts of the West Bank or other occupied territories or rights for Palestinians or any of the questions that come up for those of us who are interested in you know some some kind of of solution uh, to the conflict. Um, it seems like there, there's no longer a political need for the Israeli establishment to have to give up any of these things that it likes having. Well, political need is an interesting point because it can go in both directions. Where does political need come from? It comes from the politicians feeling that they need voter support. And if the voters aren't demanding it and politicians worry that they'll look too left wing or too weak if they propose it, then or you're right. They back out of it. Or from international pressure, right? Exactly. I mean, there used to be constraints that made Israel need to, to at least make noises about negotiations, let's say. And they've now found that they don't even have to pretend to, to be considering, uh, uh, you know, right of return or, or, or giving the PA more control or more so sovereignty. So that's exactly the other side of it, right? One side is domestic pressure and the other side is international pressure. And I think that it is in some ways debatable how much pressure Israel ever really faced in the past. I mean, what we've seen is that there's basically been, you know, unrestrained settlement growth uh, pretty much since almost since the end of the Six Day War. And, you know, there's been moments I would say there's been particular moments when there has been international pressure for Israel to move ahead on negotiations, but they've been the exception rather than the rule. Um, and when they have led to some sort of breakthrough, you can say the Oslo Accords were a breakthrough, even if they were not a peace agreement. They were uh, they were a breakthrough in the negotiation process. They happened largely because Israel decided to, to go in that direction, uh, not necessarily because of American pressure. There's been American pressure in the past. Uh, there have been you know, there, there's lots of talk about international pressure, but in fact, Israel's uh, international situation, as you pointed out, uh, not only hasn't, I think, has, hasn't faced significant pressure in the past to restrain itself in terms of its expansionism in the West Bank, but it is in a, Israel arguably is in a better international position than ever before. I mean, the, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu says this all the time uh, as part of his kind of stump speech, but he's essentially right. Israel has you know, great friends in the West, despite the noise of the potential, you know, boycott movement, European Union remains Israel's number one trading partner. Israel's doing, you know, great with America as far as Israel's concerned. Um, and at the same time, Netanyahu has been vigorously going around the world and making lots of other friends among countries that are not the natural partners that you would think of when you think of Israel as part of the family of Western democracies. He's you know, infamously tight with, uh, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary. He's been, he welcomed um, Duterte from the Philippines and he's going around Africa and making, you know, friends with Chad and all sorts of countries. Um, Poland, oddly, so despite the fact- So this is an axis of authoritarianism? Um, maybe, I, maybe you can call it proto-authoritarianism or spectrum of authoritarianism or illiberalism or illiberal democracies. The whole range of non-liberal democracies. Um, I think that Netanyahu is basically saying anywhere we can have allies around the world to diversify the sources of support uh, is good for Israel. And he's been doing that very assertively and with a lot of success um, over the years. Uh, it also expands Israel's markets, right? Helps develop, uh, you know, cushion Israel financially. So in case there ever is something like a, a serious economic boycott, which I don't see 
anytime soon. I don't see any sort of serious economic boycott with any actual ramifications on Israel. But I think that it's part of his policy is, again, to diversify sources of political support, but also to diversify Israel's, um, you know, uh, international trade and, and, and quite successfully, I should say. Well, I mean, if if the international situation is as you describe, and there is not any appreciable uh, political pressure, uh, and the domestic sources of support for a for a two state solution are um, diminishing, uh, what is it that people imagine uh, or support in its place, uh, if anything? I mean, what what are the possibilities now in terms of how uh, Israelis and Palestinians imagine this conflict? Um, playing out or, you know, what is, what's the end game to, yeah. to all of well, this? Well, this is where it gets complicated and on both sides. I mean, let me just start with the Palestinian side. You know, despite the fact that we've seen such a decline in support and Palestinian support is below 50% for a two-state solution, there's no good answer to the question of what do they want instead. It's not that all of a sudden we see 60% of Palestinians supporting one equal democratic state. It's just not the case. It's still about you know, barely in the low 30s level of support for one state solution among Palestinians. Among Israelis, a one state, a one equal state solution is even lower. It's about 20% if you tell them that all Palestinians are going to be equal citizens and have the right to vote. So it's not like people have a very clear vision of what comes next. And the reason for that is that among the Israeli right wing, I think they have a vision which involves Israeli annexation, formalizing Israel's permanent control, they haven't totally agreed about the level of Palestinian equality, if at all, or citizenship. And so they don't really want to say it. And so they don't articulate it. And so it's hard to kind of come up with what that vision is, but it clearly involves permanent Israeli control. And Israeli control under a Jewish identified Israel, not some sort of a diversified identity for this country that is going to be um, de facto under Israel's control. Uh, among the center and the left, it gets a little murky too. They pretty much still support a two-state solution. Okay, and that block together is over forty percent of Israelis. Remember, it's not a, it's not tiny. Uh, they still support a two state solution, but they just don't see how we get there. So that's not like they support something else in its stead. Uh, and there aren't that many ideas out there for what the alternatives could be. Although I am heavily engaged in some of the efforts to find such alternatives, uh, such as the idea of a two state confederation, which is kind of, you know, two states in terms of both sides having independence and self-determination uh, and sovereignty, but with uh, more cooperation, open borders, um, a joint economic and security policy, the ability to live as residents on the other side and keep your citizenship on your the side of your nationality, which allows, uh, which is more of, a, I think, an accurate reflection of where these societies really are. I don't think you can truly separate them anymore. Anyway, it's kind of a creative idea that's been, you know, being developed and advocated by a, a range of civil society actors, journalists, policymakers, thinkers, peace activists, NGO people from both Israelis and Palestinians. But it's kind of a new idea and it's just barely becoming part of the discourse. We've started to test it in polls. It has maybe, you know, around the 25% mark, 30% mark, a little over 30%. But this is just one of, you know, this is this is just among a small group of people who think that there is a need for a solution. I think one of the other real dangers is that on the Israeli side, many policymakers and people, you know, regular citizens say, eh, Maybe we don't really need quo. a solution. The status, the status quo, quo is okay. And it's very hard for them to see that there is, that the status quo, uh, they don't see why it's not sustainable. And, you know, for a long time, people like me have been saying it's not sustainable. But 
it gets very hard to make that argument given that Israel's doing so well in terms of its macroeconomic indicators and its, you know, international engagement. Um, and I think that the main argument for that is it is sustainable, but what kind of society will Israel become? It is already becoming an illiberal society inside the green line. And it is clearly illiberal, if not semi-authoritarian in all the places that Israel controls, uh, where it controls, you know, millions of Palestinians, but does not give them any effective say in their own government. We'll be right back. At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voiced and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. And we've had a lot of practice at it, 100 years in fact. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and I work on U.S. foreign policy and Middle Eastern politics, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. Our approach is simple. We sweat the details, doing the hard work today to ensure policy progress tomorrow. In the century ahead, we'll continue to prioritize rigor over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. If you want to help write the progressive headlines of tomorrow, support us today. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm here with Michael Heathana and our guest, Dahlia Shandlin, who's uh, in town from Tel Aviv. And uh, we've just been talking about some of the long-term trends in Israeli politics and where the two-state solution or other other variants uh, lie today. And uh, now um, I, want, I want to ask Dahlia to uh, help us think about America's policy and and what uh, the United States government uh, can do differently uh, in 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 terms of promoting this confederation she was just talking about or any other better approach than uh, the one we've been seeing trotted out over the last couple of years. You know, over the years, I would say if you look at the if you take the long view, uh, America has formerly been on the side of a two state solution, but arguably has not really thrown its weight behind that solution in ways that would kind of push Israel harder to get there. And I understand why, right? It's uh, a political, um, you know, it's, it's just toxic politically to try to pressure Israel in any way that goes outside the constraints of the American debate. Uh, I'm not justifying it or not, but that's analytically, that's the reason why it hasn't, why Israel, why America has not been tougher with Israel. Uh, the best America has done is to push Israel and support Israel through negotiations and host negotiations and sometimes try to really commit diplomatic efforts to getting the two sides towards a two-state solution. But there's rarely been any form of pressure to get there. And it seems that that's the only thing that would that, that could possibly work in the sense of actually reaching an agreement where Israel would have to make lots of compromises. The U.S. hasn't been willing to do that. What, okay. well, what, what does pressure look like? I mean, given that, that Obama tried words. Right. Uh, the pressure was words. The pressure was diplomatic, rhetorical. But it was not, um, you know... So the low, kinds of things low, that actually uh, would would have an impact on Israeli policy or finances, right? I mean, such as well, I mean, Obama signed a thirty eight billion dollar uh, aid package for Israel, and a lot of that. I mean, there's a reason why that is something that's hard to just dispense with, right? Because a lot of that money comes to Israel for its defense industry, so that Israel can buy American weapons. I mean, this is uh, a loop with the America in the America Israel codependence. It's I can't say we can just do away with that. However. Uh, those are the kinds of things that would have to be on the table. Uh, that kind of aid for Israel's military industries, uh, for Israel to be able to say, well, we can't sustain this because we don't have the American faucet. 
you know, we're, the, the faucet is being cut off. We won't be able to, we simply won't be able to do this anymore in the same way we have before. That's the kind of thing that is pressure that goes beyond words or encouragement, right? To reach a two-state solution. And if America's not willing to do that, then the other thing that America could be, you know, should, well, let's talk about what America has done. Under the current administration, the, uh, the you know, the, the president and the ambassador and the chief negotiator, uh, the triumvirate, we should say, have taken this, conflict in the, in a completely different direction. They've gotten so far away from anything that treats the two sides as equal partners trying to reach a resolution into essentially ensuring that Israel will always be the dominant party, um, affirming that in every possible way from moving the embassy to Jerusalem to recognizing Israel's uh, annexationist uh, tendencies by by uh, recognizing Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights, which plays into the Palestinian dynamic. Um, even just to a few weeks ago with uh, the ambassador uh, breaking down the wall of a tunnel that runs underneath East Jerusalem, which is kind of a symbolic recognition of Israel's sovereignty over East Jerusalem as well. All of these things shift the dynamic entirely. They basically tell the Palestinians, you are not an equal partner. Israel is the only serious interlocutor here. We give Israel all the backing to do anything it wants. And that essentially legitimizes trends I talked about before of Israel formalizing its total control over the region in a way that is not going to be a democracy. So one thing America could do is roll itself back from where it is going. I don't see that happening under a Trump administration, but possibly in the future. Reaffirm its commitment to treating both sides as equal independent parties that need to reach a mutually satisfactory resolution to the conflict, whatever it may be. And then I think what America needs to do is probably put you know, tougher pressure on Israel in terms of actually withholding some of those benefits if it is to get Israel to make any sort of concessions and also decide what the end game is. Is it the traditional two-state partition between two independent countries, one of which is a strong, stable, uh, you know, variously democratic and certainly economically you know, an economic powerhouse, we should say. And the other one, which would be an isolated, uh, mostly landlocked, uh, other than Gaza, but Israel will continue to control Gaza, Gaza's sea borders, you know, essentially non-viable little entity that probably won't really be able to govern itself properly as a separate independent state, given all the constraints placed on it. Is America going to continue sort of roping itself into this direction of a traditional two-state solution that probably won't ever be implemented or, or maintained? Or will American policymakers say, you know, we need to change the endpoint of where we're going in order to create a realistic one? Well, and in, and in terms of, of policymaking, obviously, uh, it takes its cues uh, from, from politics. Um, and um, we're beginning to see, I think, some interesting discussions happening in, in U.S. politics, uh, discussions that you know that I didn't imagine happening. Um, do you think that the, that these are um, that these new trends in American politics have um, will have any kind of impact in in future years? I think they will. I mean, I think Israelis are always attentive to what goes on in America. Um, they're not always as attentive as as some people think they are. You know, and tr uh, it's always been ironic to me that Israelis just take for granted American Jewish support, for example. They don't know the name APAC, but they just know that American Jews love them and give them lots of money. Uh, and when American, when the American Jewish community was, you know, was having very heated debates over APAC and then, the, you know, then J Street was created, Israelis never heard of J Street for years until recently, and they didn't follow these debates at all. And by the same logic, they sort of know that America as a country is just on our side. They didn't really ever imagine that different administrations would do anything particularly differently up until now. 
And I think what we're seeing now is growing awareness inside Israel that the division over how America should treat Israel, not just in the Jewish community, but at the political level among the two parties and among the supporters of those parties is becoming a really significant distinction uh, and a real wedge issue in American politics. I mean, I have to say, I think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict plays an outsized role in the American perception um, of what we care about in terms of foreign policy. Um, and I think that Israelis are more attuned to that than in the past. I saw more coverage of the midterm elections than in the past and certainly more coverage of, you know, in detail, detailed coverage of who are the young Democratic voters? Why are they so much more critical of Israel than older Democratic voters? Why are Democrats in general so much more critical of Israel than Republicans? And how deep the split is becoming? We see coverage of those polls coming out from Gallup every so often, showing this major partisan divide in America. Uh, and they're increasingly also aware of the divide within the Jewish community between younger and older people. And so I think that right now it's still at a theoretical level among the Israeli perception. This is not something the Israelis or political parties are debating um, as the elections are you know near they're not saying gee where does each israeli political party stand on how to deal with changing perceptions in america but i do think there's a longer term awareness that america might not be a stalwart supporter of every sort of annexationist whim that israel may have i shouldn't call it a whim since it's been going on for so long i think that they might start to realize that it's not something they can depend on depending on who the administration will be well, so here's a question i mean i i i very much welcome this long overdue willingness among some American politicians to talk uh, critically about problematic Israeli policies. Um, very little, uh, I have very little sense of specific actions, meaningful actions that any, you know, it, it's, it's toxic enough politically to just be critical, uh, but that turns out not to necessarily mean anything. Is there a way for the U.S. to uh, somehow withdraw any material support for settlements while maintaining its other uh, financial and, and, and assistance relationships with Israel? You know, it's a good question, but I, I, I don't know if there's a real, I don't think there's a real way for America just to stop supporting settlements because there is no separate administration for settlements. Settlements are supported by every ministry in the Israeli government. And there's no, there's no direct U.S. financial uh, assistance that goes to settlements. U.S. It's all military going to assistance goes to the IDF. The IDF is run out of Jerusalem. I mean, it's, you know, this is the Israeli government that runs the army. And so it's not that there's one settlement division of the Israeli army. Uh, you know, managing the West Bank, which, and certainly uh, in Area C, is one of the biggest operational tasks of the Israeli army right now. So it would have to be specifically cutting defense aid, is what you're saying. Could the U.S. say, we'll give you this defense aid, but none of it can be spent in the occupied territories? It's interesting that you ask that because it's a great parallel to what both Israel and the U.S. are trying to say about the Palestinians, right? Israel's, uh, you know, I don't know if listeners know, but Israel collects taxes on behalf of the Palestinian Authority under the uh, under the Oslo Accords, essentially. And what Israel's been saying is since some of that money goes to sustaining uh, the families of people who are security prisoners, some of whom are terrorists, but a lot of whom are just people who had very vague links to some uh, terrorist organization, but maybe not even the actual terrorists in that organization. It's a very controversial issue. Um, Israel's been saying, we're going to withhold that money until you stop, until the Palestinian Authority stops giving money to those families um, or to those people who are security prisoners. And we'll just withhold exactly that amount from your taxes, which is devastating because it, of course, is a major, the only major source of income for the Palestinian Authority. So what you're saying is essentially, why doesn't America consider treating Israel in the same way? Say you have policies we don't like, just like the Palestinians have policies we don't like, um, and we will just withhold that amount of money. 
it sounds like a logical idea. I have a hard time imagining any American administration doing it politically. Um, and I think that the, you know, the way, certainly under the right-wing governments in Israel, uh, it would be treated as such an incredible betrayal that it, it's it's hard to imagine. It would like, like pandemonium would break out uh, in the Israeli political environment. Now, the only way around that, I would say, is if you have an Israeli government who is of the same orientation that you are, who says, listen, in any case, we have to roll back this enterprise. But as you um, said in the first part of this conversation, that does not seem to be in the cards it doesn't given Israel's long-term political trend. It doesn't seem likely. However, we should put out there the distinct possibility that uh, a major opposition party could win the elections. They could, it could. And if that happens, uh, you know, for example, take Blue and White, which you know, was tied for the same number of seats in the previous election in April. Blue and White's platform on the conflict is very nondescript. They don't even say the words two-state solution. They talk about kind of a separation, which you can deduce might lead to a two-state solution. They even talk about strengthening settlements in the major settlement blocks. But the flip side of that is that, again, by deduction, you'd have to assume that they intend to roll back the settlements that even most Israelis in the military establishment consider damaging to Israel. So those that are isolated, those that... Uh, you know, make it hard for Palestinians to have any sort of viable economic and social life, which makes them angrier and makes them more hostile, uh, which are hard to defend and are considered illegal even under Israeli uh, terms. So if one of those, you know, if that opposition party should really win, you can imagine they would at least probably try to roll back the more controversial settlements, or I should say the settlements that are less controversial uh, in Israeli life in terms of limiting their expansion. And so in that case, you would that would probably be something they would do in coordination with the Americans. And it would be very, very small and incremental. It's hard to imagine a big dramatic change uh, unless we're looking far into the future and a very, very bold new kind of American leadership who's willing to take that kind of action you know, to pressure Israel into going further. You know, if we get beyond the tactics, um, um, then we have to think about what it's for. Um, and the kind of easy answer that took many years and decades um, to become part of, uh, you know, American political thinking, the two-state solution, increasingly, as you note, looks impossible. Um, what then... Um, what then is an American administration uh, thinking about shifting course? What 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 is an American administration working toward? Yeah. I mean, what does that and, and, political settlement look like? And can I just build on that question? Uh, could it be a one state solution, or could it be a, a, a dialogue where we just talk about rights and we say it's not our business whether it's one state or two state, but it is our business whether everyone living under your control has the right to vote and and other equal rights. Yeah. I think that's a very important question because, you know, as you pointed out those, what you euphemistically called the changes in American uh, policy, in American uh, discourse around the, around the conflict, what I think we're talking about is specific front runners or prominent democratic figures who are very critical of the occupation, critical of settlements, you know, uh, supporting Palestinian rights and self-determination. But what I don't see them doing is taking it to the next step and saying, we're critical of this because we want to end it. Here's how we propose ending it, or here's what we think would be good for Israel and the Palestinians to end it. And I think that's because there is an awareness that the two-state solution is so stuck. So I, I want to just back up and say that all of the changing discourse in America is important, but it will be limited until there is an endgame. It's almost as if it's too late. You know, I it mean, might be too, if, well, this was, if this was 1995, um, this talk about uh, uh, the you know, accepted criticism of the settlement enterprise, you can imagine the ways in which that has real appreciable knock-on effects on the policy it's less clear to me now what that looks like. Put it this way. I don't think it's ever too late to dismantle an oppressive structure of military government over a civilian population. It's never too late 
to end what is an essentially an oppressive regime. It's never too late for people to become independent when they have not had self-determination for their entire history. It is never too late for that. And it is never too early to start demanding that. So some people say, despite our conversation, there are people on the other side saying, well, these things take time. No, the time is now. Okay, but we do need an end game. And it has to be a realistic end game. If the two-state solution is no longer a realistic end game, the options are limited. It's either one state with unequal uh, rights, unequal levels of citizenship. You can call that whatever you want, but it's not an acceptable situation for a country that wants to be democratic. So either Israel does that and gives up on any pretensions to democracy, or it's one state with full equal rights for all citizens, but on the de facto level, that's going to be very difficult because Palestinians are so alienated. They probably won't. They they won't believe. They won't. They probably won't believe or want full Israeli citizenship. And how can you just join the citizen body of the country that's been oppressing you all these years? They will probably feel so marginalized that they won't even participate in democratic life if they were offered. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that Israel will create obstacles to them taking citizenship, even if they theoretically offer it, just as it has created such obstacles for East Jerusalem Palestinians. Um, and so even the idea of one equal state, it's very hard for me to see how that is implemented in practice. I, I can't even see a path to getting to an equal one state situation. Um, and so it's almost by default that I have come to think that the best approach is to is to accept that both sides need self-determination, national self-determination. The Palestinians are an identity. They are people. They are a nation. They need self-determination. They have a territory. They should have a better government. I wish for all Palestinians to have a better government, but they deserve to elect their own. Uh, at the same time, I think it uh, is totally unsustainable, un impractical. I don't see how there can be an agreement and implementation or sustainability of you know, uh, ethnic segregation between Israeli Jews and Palestinians. And so I think that the idea of two states that are uh, open, cooperative, um, have certain institutions to share uh, policies, such as mostly security and economic policy, um, but have their separate parliaments and their separate, you know, separate legislatures, separate executives for managing their own affairs is probably the best. And the only one that I can imagine actually being both agreed on, implemented and sustained. Seems like uh, equal rights might be a good a good uh, rhetorical starting point for a, a better U.S. policy. We're going to have to leave it there uh, for today, but hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast soon. Uh, Dahlia Shanlin uh, joining us, and uh, I'm Thanasi Kambanis with uh, my colleague Michael Wahid Hanna here in New York at the Century Foundation. You've been listening to the TCF World Podcast. Till next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.